Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Informed Catholic Podcast. My name is Netjabar. This is going to be part 16, episode 30 of the Informed Catholic. We are in um, entering into uh, Holy Week, and so uh, we're going to um, explore and meditate uh, a little bit on the Passion of Our Lord, the Sadness of Christ, we're going to, um, I think uh, we're reaching countdown. So let's open up with a prayer, please. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day he rose again from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. I confess to Almighty God and to Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, to blessed Michael the Archangel, to blessed John the Baptist, to the holy apostles Peter and Paul, and to all the saints, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore I invoke the blessed Mary ever-Virgin, blessed Michael the Archangel, blessed John the Baptist, the holy apostles Peter and Paul, and all the saints, to pray to the Lord our God for me, May Almighty God have mercy upon us, forgive us our sins, bring us to everlasting life. Kiri elision, Christe elision, Kiri elision. And may the Almighty and merciful Lord grant us pardon, absolution, and remission of our sins. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. Now the hour of our death. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, uh, we are now um, going to be entering into Holy Week. Tomorrow is going to be uh, Passion Sunday, otherwise known as Palm Sunday. Um the Mass is a reenactment, uh, a, um, a celebration, uh, a reality of the Passion of Christ. Uh, we come together to, in the liturgy to experience the reality of Christ. Um, it was interesting. Um, I was listening. They, um, it's someone mentioned it, it is kind of like a play. And each reenactment is still of the original play, but at the same time, it may have different actors in the role, but it is still the same play. Uh, 
I think I saw this yesterday in a Michael Voris's video on the Eucharist. It is the reality of what happened in the upper room. And it, it is also a reality of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. And it is also the reality of what happened to our Lord from his trial to the cross. And this is something that we as Catholics have to understand. It is one Mass, one Mass, but it is different people in different places can still participate in the same mass the mass that was cel that we celebrate today is supernaturally in a cosmic way it's a very it's a word that uh, you got to use very carefully but it is the same reality of the liturgy that took place in the upper room which happened in time and it is the same Mass that is taking place in heaven, which is in, within eternity. Now, here's an interesting thing I was thinking about. Since our Lord is both God and man, the Mass that we celebrate is both in time and in eternity. Because if we believe the Eucharist is the reality of Jesus Christ, then each time we go to Mass, we enter into both the divinity and the humanity of Jesus and the reality of his real presence. It's mind-boggling, but, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a theologian, but I think I touched upon something that... Uh, you know, I think all of us can. If you really just think about it, just really think about it. Think about it. Try to uh, open your mind to it and think about it. Jesus is God. Jesus is man. As God, he's eternal. He transcends all time and space and all reality. As man, he lived in time and space and in a reality. Now, no one's saying that God is not in reality. God is eternal and God's reality is transcends that of man's reality. But in the incarnation, he embraced the reality of, uh, of, of the man, uh, of, of the humanity of Christ. He, you know, it is one and the same person. But it's it just that we take we participate whenever we receive go up and participate in the liturgy, we are participating in the reality of Christ. We are participating in the humanity of Christ. We are participating in the the divinity of Christ, and this is something we have to uh, grasp. This is what makes the mass so fantastic. The liturgy. Um, there was it was interesting in a sense. It's it's wonderful the fact that we can participate in the transubstantiation, the transubstantiation of our Lord in the Eucharist. It, to receive the sacrament, we have to show up in person. There's no social distancing 
in the sacraments. That's one of the one of the most beautiful things about it. Now you hear this word social distancing. You can't social distance when it comes to the sacraments. You can't uh, call a priest uh, so he can hear your confession on the phone, or you can't confess on Skype or Zoom. You have to go show up in person to confess your sins and to receive absolution. And so there's no social distance absolution. There's no social distance baptism. There was a photograph on Instagram where the father was holding his little baby girl and the priest, it was a, it was a joke. It was not mocking the sack. It was mocking social distancing where he was holding this water gun and, and it was saying social distancing baptism. It's, it's funny. It's funny, but you gotta, you know, you have to have a sense of humor about it because it's, it's mocking this whole obsession with social distancing. And, um, you know, it's such a, a politically correct word. It's such a sanitized word, which is what it's intend to be. But uh, because the way a lot of the young people today talk, if you notice, they have this very sanitized, uh, you know, politically correct social justice way of speaking. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, it's kind of sad. But let's, you know, let's be really serious about this. Uh, about our our our, our um, meditation here, I was trying very hard to come up with a way to try to talk about the reality of Judas Iscariot, this traitor, this uh, this character who, for even now after two thousand years, he remains hidden in the shadows. And I'm going to try a little bit. I'm going to read uh, some passages to try to bring it to light. So I'd like to read to you uh, from the book of Genesis on Joseph, uh, his brothers betraying him and selling him into slavery. So let me pull out the, the Bible here. Now, uh, this is from Genesis chapter 37. Joseph is sold by his brothers. It starts from verse 12, and it goes down to verse 36. Um, so it's, it's a long one, but I think it will help. So let's start with uh, reading it. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem. Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, that is to the father, Joseph said to the father, here I am. So he said to him, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word again. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields, and the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, I pray you, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar off, and before he came near to them, 
they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we shall, we shall say to a, that a wild beast has devoured him. And we shall see what became of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he delivered him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood, cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but lay no hands upon him, that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe with the long sleeves that he wore, and they took him and cast him into the pit. The pit was empty, and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is, is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers heeded him. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he rent his clothes and returned his brothers and said, The lad is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and killed a goat and dipped the robe in the blood, and they went, no, they sent the long robe with the sleeves and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. See now whether it is your son's robes or not. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. A wild beast has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob rent his garments and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, No, I shall go down to show to my son, to my son mourning. Thus he, his father, wept for him. Meanwhile the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is uh, pretty much uh, a spiritual prophecy, a foretelling of Christ being betrayed. Notice uh, Judah, the oldest son, the one who, um, the line that Jesus will be coming from, and the name Judah and Judas are the same name. It's just they, uh, in order to differentiate, they kind of like changed one. And what is interesting about it is he's the one who came up with the idea of selling him to these caravan. 
and the caravan is interesting. Uh, they carried three gifts, almost like the three wise men. You know, uh, myrrh, uh, gum, and I think, uh, what do you call it? There was something else um, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. And it's uh, interesting that myrrh um uh, is used for uh it's very bitter but is also used for uh burial and myrrh is was used for Jesus's burial and balm as well i mean they, they use a lot of different spices in order to um keep the the uh the worms away i believe and other things and also to to uh to get rid of the smell of rot that the corpse gives and notice they threw him in a pit they stripped him of his robe, just like the soldiers stripped Christ of his robe, and then they th uh, and the pit symbolizes sort of it symbolizes death. It was an, a well, and the well was empty of water, sort of like uh, it represents, according to the church fathers, uh, the fact of they they were empty of grace, they were empty of. Uh, of, of the spirit of God, the, the brothers. I mean, think about it. They, they wanted to murder him. And even though they decided not to murder him, Judas, Judah decided not to uh, convince the other not to murder him, but sell him into slavery, which is pretty much just the same as death. Because who knows what would happen to him, what abuses, what horrible uh, molestation he could have gone through. I mean... In places like that, uh, you know, selling to slavery, they have they also had a tendency to uh, perform a, a certain form of castration on slaves, make him into a eunuch, which is, you know, uh, a, a, a violation, uh, a mutilation. He could have gone through it. He could have been branded. He could have been abused. He could have been sent to dig in the mines, which is pretty much just as good as dead. So they went ahead and they, they, they were planning to kill him. And their next step was to sell him into slavery. And then they faked his murder, which at the same time, he could have been put to death. They took his robes, dipped it in, in goat's blood. The other interesting part is notice that he's walking through the field. It's a type of reference some of the church fathers said, going back to God walking in the garden, look, asking for Adam and Eve where they are. So he's walking through the field. Another picture of this is, remember Christ's parables, where he talked about leasing uh, a vineyard to some tenants. And he then he sends his prophets, his messengers, to uh, collect the interest from the vineyard. But they killed or murdered or beat up and humiliated the messengers. Then the man decided to send him his son, believing that they would respect him. It's the same parable. It's the same, it's the same story. It's a picture of Christ, and it's a picture of the betrayal of Judas. I'm going to read uh, a passage from Zechariah, and you'll notice something that will stand out. This is uh, from Zechariah chapter 11. It's titled, Two Kinds of Shepherds. I'll start from verse 4 
and we'll go down to verse 17. Thus says the Lord God, Become shepherd of the flock, doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, Blessed be the Lord, I have become rich. And their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, says the Lord. I will cause men to fall, each into the hand of his shepherd, and each into the hand of his king. And they shall crush the earth, and I will deliver none of them from, it, from their hands. So I became the shepherd of the flock, doomed to be slain, for those who trafficked in the sheep. And I took two staffs, one I named Grace, and the other I named Union. And I tended the sheep. In one month I destroyed three shepherds, but I became impatient with them. And they also de detested me. So I said, I will not be your shepherd. What is to die, let it die. What is to be destroyed, let it be destroyed. And let those that are left devour the flesh of one another. And I took my, st my staff, Grace, and I broke it, annulling the covenant which I had made with all the people. So it was annulled on that day. And the traffickers in the sheep who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems right to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out as my wages thirty shekels of silver. I'm sorry. Oh, yes, thirty shekels of silver. Then the Lord said to me, Cast it into the treasury, the lordly price at which I was paid off by them. So I took thirty shekels of silver and cast them into the treasury in the house of the Lord. Then I broke my second staff, Union, annulling the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. Then the Lord said to me, Take once more the implements of, of a worthless shepherd. For, lo, I am raising up in the land a shepherd who does not care for the perishing, or seek the wrongdoing, or heal the maimed, or nourish the sound but devour the flesh of the fat, once tearing off even their hooves. Woe to, wor to my worthless shepherds who desert the flock. May the sword smite his arm and his right eye. Let his arm be wholly withered and his, uh, his right eye utterly blinded. So you see the prophecy of the 30 pieces of silver there in the... Um, in the book of Genesis, they paid 20 pieces of silver to the brothers for Joseph. Um, the, the, the fact is 20 uh, symbolizes the second person of the Trinity that will come. And the 30 symbolizes the completeness of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, because in the New Testament... Uh, ten for the Father, ten for the Son, and ten for the Holy Spirit. Thus, thirty. So, because if you betray one member of the Trinity, you, put, you, you betray all three members of the Trinity. So, uh, you can see right there. Uh, next one, I want to read a, a small portion from, the, from Psalm 41. Okay, so Psalm 41... And um, 
I'm going to read, uh, at least start off from, from verse 4. As for me, oh, as for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me, heal me, for I have sinned against thee. My enemies say of me in malice, when will he die and his name perish? And when one comes to see me, he utters empty words, while his heart gathers mischief. When he goes out, he tells it abroad. All who hate me whisper together about me. They imagine the worst for me. They say a deadly thing has fastened upon him. He will not rise again from where he lies. Even my bosom friend, in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So you get that? That's the part that I, want, I wanted to stand out for you. Even my bosom friend, in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Right there, that's... Uh, often been uh, believed and stood out referring to Judas who will betray our Lord. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's all there, basically. And you can go further back. You can find more interesting passages. Uh, Eat my bread. That is basically referred to because the fact that Judas sat at the, at the Last Supper, uh, the last Passover, and Jesus will say, you, I will read it to you, the one who dips with me at the same time as I am, or the one who I give this morsel to will uh, will betray me. Uh, you'll see these things, and I'm going to point it out to you, these passages that often has been referred to the treachery. Matthew 26, uh, verse 14 and 15. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Then one of the twelve, who was called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. One of the things I want to point out is, notice how it always says, one of the twelve. Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and said, you know, what will you give me if I deliver him to you? But right from the start, from verse 14, then one of the 12. And I think that's very important that we understand this, that he, that they never, they don't want us to forget that he was one of the 12. And this is important. Now, going on from there, from that, in that same chapter, starting from verse 17 down to verse 25, now, on the, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to such a one and say to him that the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep my Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he sat at table with the 12 disciples and as they were eating eating he said truly i say to you one of you will betray me and they 
were very sorrowful, and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who betrayed him, said, Is it I, Master? He answered, he said to him, You have said so. It's notice the part. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me, he who eats my bread, lips his heel against me. This is what the tradition that the apostles and this is how they interpreted it. They're, the translation that they use at the time, most of the time, 90% of the time throughout the New Testament is the Subduigent, which was the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. And they believed, and some today, our translation that we're supposed to be using, which is the Vulgate, is based on the Subduigent, uh, which is a, a, trans, a Greek translation, a Greek version of the, old, of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the translations, they tend to, in some areas, uh, their translation tend to have been expanded. Verses that are, would have been a little bit smaller in Hebrew and using a few words, for some reason in Greek, they would have expanded to explain more. And a lot of people believed that the translation, uh, what, what happened was it was that more revelation was revealed that it was a divine hand involved in it and that they use it they use paraphrasing that's a little bit more so uh this is one of the reasons why sometimes you might notice an argument like for example in Isaiah where it would say a young woman shall conceive and bear a son where the translators in the new testament would say a virgin shall conceive and bear a son so this is where sometimes some people who are uh, very hostile to religion would say, well, there's no true translation of the Bible. The Bible has been changed over and over again. They don't really understand that's not true. The Bible has not been translated or changed throughout history. The version we have is very clearly uh, an inspired version. And the Subduigent is very much an inspired uh, translation and, you know, it's something I will always hold. But hey, if, you know, if a person is not religious, I think making claim about something that you don't really know about or understand. And the History Channel is not exactly the best classroom to learn about history. <laughs> let's put it that way. So let's go into John's Gospel, okay? So we're going to go a little further back in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, this is where Jesus gave the declaration that he is the bread of life. At the end of that uh, chapter 6, this is chapter 6, uh, from verse 66 down to uh, 71. This is chapter 6, verse 66 down to 71. After this, many of his disciples drew back and no longer went about with him. Jesus said to the twelve, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, 
the twelve, and one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, Simon, Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was to betray him. There, now there you have it there. So you see, it happened at the end of the bread of life declaration, where Jesus revealed to the world that he is, that he will feed the world with his body and blood that he is the, uh, the, the, the sacrament of the Father. And one of the interesting thing is, he says in that discourse, the seal of the Father's on him. Uh, people who bake bread traditionally would put a seal on their bread so you know which uh, baker it came from. So that's, that was a tradition. So the seal of the Father, the Father has imprinted his seal on his Son so he would be the bread of life. Okay, let's look into one more, or two more, actually. At the Passover, uh, this is again John chapter 13, verse 21, uh, down to uh, 30. Jesus foretells his betrayal. When Jesus had thus spoken, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another and uncertain from whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was lying close to the, the breast of Jesus. So Simon Peter beckoned to him uh, and said, Tell us who it is of whom he speaks. So lying thus close to the breast of Jesus, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the, to whom I shall give this morsel when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel he immediately went out and it and it was night now i'm going to read to you from jim bishop's book the day christ died it's actually a, a pretty good book to read uh during lent along with um fulton sheen's a life uh the life of christ and the lord um by um i believe his name is jasani uh they're both they're all great books any one of them is great, <clears throat> excuse me, for the time of Lent to meditate on, on the life of our Lord. But here I want to read, I want us to focus a little bit on Judas, what motivated him. It's clear it was a loss of faith in the Eucharist because it's closely connected. Uh, John has Jesus our Lord calling, saying, I chose you 12, but one of you is a devil. And John makes it clear. He pulls Judas out from the 12, which one is the devil. And then it happened at the, at the synagogue of Capernaum, where Jesus declared that he is the bread of the father, that he is the bread and life of the father, that the father will feed to the world. And then, Always at the Last Supper, if you read all the Gospels, it's always associated with Judas. Judas's lack of faith and Judas's practical 
behavior as a man, his personality of being a practical man, which I'm going to read to you what Jim, Jim Bishop points out here. A man devoid of faith like Judas needs something to sustain him, to nourish his emotional life. And most men in this position boast of their practical side. Judas was a practical man. As one of the original 12, he had subscribed to Jesus as the Messiah. As long there was a good living you know, in it and for the money, and you know a, a fervent enterprise it was good living indeed because hundreds and then thousands of people came to believe that this man jesus was indeed the promised one of yahweh the messiah okay that he would send to save israel this being the case the rich recruits to the cause not only knelt before Jesus and wept and they begged Jesus for forgiveness and kissed the hem of his dusty garments but they would not only be uh, they would not be satisfied until they had contributed their wealth to the uh, further enterprise of the Messiah at times in the presence of miracles such as the recent ones of raising Lazarus up uh, he had been and who had been in the tomb for four days Judas must have believed in Jesus but then his practical side told him that such things were in the nature of Egyptian magic, as everyone knew at the time. And Judas believed that there was a collusion between Jesus and Lazarus and Jesus and uh, other beneficiaries of, of the miracles. It was a good scheme to be, to be allied with a long list. And they, they flourished you know, and, G and Judas remained with it, you know, and exactly as long as he could. But in recent weeks, when he heard Jesus speak more and more poignantly about his impending death, Judas began to suspect that the scheme had been drained of its uh, good, of its uses. When he learned that the Pharisees were after Jesus, Judas knew that the end was near because they there were many of them and and they were strong and Jesus was only one person and he was weaker than them. Then when some of the followers hurried from Jerusalem to Ephraim to warn Jesus that Caiaphas, the high priest, was plotting to arrest and condemn Judas for, for blasphemy, Judas knew that at this particular point the uh, venture was at an end. I'm not going to read any more, but there was a passage where later on you have Caiaphas and Judas sort of like bargaining. And Caiaphas kind of measured Judas, the kind of guy that would steal the coins from the dead man's eyes, but overlook the jeweled ring on the dead man's finger. So it seems to be about money. It seems to be that if you don't have faith in the Eucharist, if you don't really believe in Jesus, then you're going to sort of like look at him as sort of just that, uh, a state, uh, your business. You know, Jesus was good for business. Jesus performed miracles. Uh, you see this with uh, evangelical pastors who who preach on, you know, and, and go on TV. They, and they always have an ad. It's funny thing is on a Sunday, 
they're supposed to be the Lord's Day, and these people are always, you see an advertisement for, get this particular study kit, or get this particular biblical study kit, or or something, or get this, this uh, new Holy Land thing. It's an advertisement. And it's very insulting, I think. I don't know how a lot of, a lot of evangelicals put up with that. But then you go a little further, and you know, from from, from the another perspective, a lot of these men, like uh, on tele televangelists, they live like princes. They live like kings. They live in big mansions. They have big swimming pools. They have uh, a big giant airplane. A, you know, their own personal airplane that carries them or takes them over to some other place. I mean, you realize how much money it probably costs to have that thing in maintenance. I mean, they must be making millions. And then suddenly, uh, with our bishops, our own Catholic bishops, they're also constantly worried about money. And they have such close association with politicians. And they they actually, the like Catholic Relief Agency puts itself out as an agency, an independent nonprofit agency, so they can get money, uh, government support. And government support means government money. And what happens? It diminishes faith. Now, there's some people who probably uh, hate the Catholic faith, hate the Christian faith, but I don't think that kind of beha you know, uh, behavior, if you don't have faith in the Eucharist, you have reduced your religion to a practical, common sense, human, secular humanist idea. You can't do that. The reason why we're suffering and why the churches are closed is as God is saying to us, you don't appreciate it. Let's see if you appreciate it now. And suddenly we have this plague and suddenly our bishops fell fell like a, like a stack of dominoes or cards and they didn't bother to even make at least a fight, a fight to make sure that whole, you know, that people are not deprived of the sacraments are not deprived of Christ. But unfortunately, this is exactly what happened. And God wants us to learn our lesson, to stop being, you know, um, it's just too much. It really breaks my heart. So I'm going to end it here, and we're going to, I'll come back later on with something else, okay? So God bless, and let's say a quick prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. So we'll hear again soon, and I'll come up with some other stuff that will uh, keep you updated on things. God bless.